You're listening to the Rebel Boss Ladies podcast, where we feature everyday rebel bosses just like you who are taking charge of their life and creating a path to financial freedom by launching digital products online. I'm your host, Eden Freed. Let's learn to launch. Welcome back, Rebels. This episode will be a potentially life-changing one for you. If you've ever felt that feeling of doom that imposter syndrome brings on, then you are in good company, my friend, and you are in the right place. (laughs) Becky Mollenkamp is on the show today. She is a certified life coach who helps women, femmes, and thems unlearn patriarchal conditioning and redefine success on their own terms. And trust me, she is just the person for this particular conversation. Becky is about to totally change your perspective and give you some actionable strategies that you can start implementing as soon as today. Before we dive in, remember that if you want to learn how to launch your digital product in the next 90 days, I've got a free roadmap for you. It's going to show you exactly what to do in what order. Head to edenfree.com forward slash RBL. Again, edenfree.com forward slash RBL to grab your free copy. All right, let's dive in. Becky, I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk. Okay, so before we dive into the topic, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah. It's always hard to say because um, historically I've called myself a mindset coach, but, and we're going to, as we talk today, it'll probably become apparent. Like, I don't really even like that term anymore because the more I have been digging in and doing my own work around sort of patriarchal conditioning, the more I have gotten kind of grossed out by a lot of people who call themselves mind coaches, mindset coaches, and not even not grossed out by them, but just by the, the market for mindset coaching and, and who's using it and how they're using it and the way they talk about it. But I have said mindset coach or life coach, which has some of the same issues. So there's no term I really love. I tell people I should really call myself as a self-compassion coach, but I don't know that people think they need that, but it's really, my work is about helping women, thems and thems really learn to use compassion for themselves to love themselves and to creating the lives they actually want outside of what they've been told they should want. So how did you get into that? You probably didn't grow up thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to (laughs) do. Doesn't every little kid say, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a life life coach, mindset coach. No, Um, no, I was going to be a writer when I grew up. And that's exactly what I did. So when I was like, you know, seven, I think I wrote my first little book and received a lot of praise for that. And that sort of became some of my identity is like, oh, I'm good at writing. Writing gets me praise. I'll be a writer. And I was also the kind of kid who was very like stubborn. And like, if I said I was going to do something, then I would do it. And so that's what I did. I became a writer and I worked as a newspaper reporter. And then I worked for magazines and I did all of that for a really long time, 20 something years in that career. And guess what? I didn't love it. I was really good at it, but I didn't really love it. And I had that life that people said looked really good on paper, but I didn't love I was making great money. I was working at a really big name magazine that was very prestigious and people knew and like you could go to the grocery store and see my name and print in a magazine and everyone was like, wow, that's so cool. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't feel fulfilling at all. But I couldn't admit that. It was hard to even begin to admit it to myself, let alone anyone else. And so my brother died in 2010 of a heroin overdose. And that is really the pivotal moment in my life where it sort of shook me out of that slumber, out of my autopilot of like, just doing what I said I was gonna and like doing everything I thought I was supposed to. I mean, I had done all the things except for having a kid. 
because I'm so grateful to former Becky for at least not doing that just because of shoulds. But I had gotten married, I had built the house, we had, you know, had all the disposable income, I had the job I was supposed to have, I traveled all the time, I did all the things, had all the designer labels, and I wasn't happy. And my brother's death was what made me say like, whoa, life is really too short to keep this up. Because there was a part of me at 35, when my brother died, that still was thinking like, well, I mean, I guess I could just do this forever. I guess I could just be okay forever. I could have a good enough life the rest of my life. And it makes me sad now to think that that person was willing to accept that. But I think a lot of us are. So that shook me out of that. It was a series of events. I knew I wanted to make a massive change in my life. I didn't know what. I mean, I had only ever said I would be a writer. Then what? And so from there, I was like, I know I want to help women at that time, specifically women sort of find their way because I was finding my way. It started out as doing personal training, then kind of traditional business coaching. And then I sort of found my way into this world of life coaching, mindset coaching. I'm like, oh, that's a thing. And then in the last, so it's been an evolution over the last few years. And just in the last two years, I think I've really started to find my home and understand where I fit into this coaching world. Well, I have chills. (laughs) I think that's, it's always fascinating for me to hear people's journey into how they got to what they're doing. And I think it's really remarkable that you took a tragedy in your life and were able to, you know, see that as a sign to do something different and actually go for it. And I think it is really sad that so many people just accept like whatever, whatever their life is, even if it's not hundred percent fulfilling, they're just like, all right, this is what it is. Yeah. And you know, now I have much more empathy. I have a lot, cause I have a lot of sadness for that, but I also can look at that person and say, I also understand it. And the people who are still living that place, I get it because of so much of the conditioning we have specifically as women, femmes, thems, anyone that's not in that sort of white male privilege, we have a lot of messaging about what we can and can't have, are and aren't allowed to do, right? Even if we feel like, oh, we have so many people saying you can do anything. The reality when we look around is that's not true. And our messaging directly from our parents, from our society, from pop culture, from our religion, there's so many places we're getting so much messaging that really does make us start to talk. Like I had a lot of messaging around, you should be grateful. Why can't you just be grateful for all that you have? There's people who have it worse. Who are you to think that your life is bad? Like there's so much kind of messaging that, that creates that like feeling of, I should be okay. I should just be happy with this. It should be enough. So as much as I'm sad for it, I also fully can like understand it now in a way that I couldn't then. Yeah. Society sucks, basically. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) It sounds so horrible. Like I I do worry sometimes when I do these shows and I talk about like patriarchy and stuff, it can start to sound a little like nihilistic. Like what's the point? (laughs) But I do believe that we can make change because I still, we all still live in patriarchy. That's not going to change, but my life looks so much different now and it is so fulfilling now. And I know it's possible. And this is really why I named my brand the way I named it, you know, rebel boss. Cause I just, I've always felt like we live in this cage box, whatever you want to call it, that like everybody says do X, Y, Z in this order, in this way, whatever. And why, like, why do we have to do it that way? You know, why can't we break the rules and just do what feels good and whatever, but it is easier said than done because we are taught to believe life is supposed to be a certain way and all kinds of shoulds, right? You shouldn't should yourself. (laughs) Well, it's funny because when I thought of like rebel boss, I'm like, I'm 
I don't think of myself as a rebel at all. Like, I think I am the most boring, like <laughs> vanilla beige person there is. And I, whenever I'm around the cool kids of the online business world who have like cool hair and wear high-waisted jeans and whatever it is that they do that may, I'm like, I am so boring and not a rebel, but oh, I do think, right. In a lot of ways I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not rebellious in those like obvious kind of ways, but I am the kind of rebel, which I think what you're talking about, which is let's just question. Yeah. Let's just question, does it have to be done this way? Do I have to accept this? And in that way, I have become much more rebellious, but I still think I'm pretty boring. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm pretty boring myself. I uh, I always like look back to my teenage years where I did absolutely nothing rebellious whatsoever. And so I assured my parents I would rebel in my adulthood. <laughs> and so this is my, <laughs> this is my rebellion. <laughs> nice, I like it. Yeah, so I think that this is a good natural segue into our topic today which is imposter syndrome and just dealing with this idea that we're not good enough or we don't have the right skill set um, or the right know-how to be selling whatever it is that we're selling because this is just such a prevalent topic. It's something that plagues so many people's minds when they're about to launch or even just thinking about launching. So Becky, tell me like, what's the definition to you of imposter syndrome? We'll just start there. Yeah. Or that you don't have cool enough purple hair and yeah, right? high waisted jeans. Cool. That's my version of it is I'm always like not You're cool too vanilla. Enough. Yeah. I'm not cool enough to be, it's not usually my skill set, but it's still that like, I'm not cool enough. Um, well, imposter syndrome and I want to talk about it because I'm excited. Like whenever I'm talking about imposter syndrome these days, I'm using really heavy air quotes. So like, you can't see me, but I'm like air quoting the heck around the term imposter syndrome. I still use it because it's the term that most people know, and it is something people really identify with. But to me, what it really just means is doubt, self-doubt. Like it's a pretty normal feeling of doubt, like doubting whether you have a right to be at the table whether everyone else is gonna believe that you should be in that room, right? That's really what it's about. It's about despite all the evidence to the contrary about your skills, your abilities, your experience, your education, any of those things, there's still this like lingering feeling of, I don't measure up and everyone's gonna realize it. That's really what it means. And what it really boils down to is self-doubt, a totally normal human emotion of doubt that a couple of people in the 70s, and I think very well-meaning, some psychologists that were doing studies around this, their goal was to find out why, I think they had noticed this trend that continues 40 years later, why does it seem to be affecting women more than men? Why is it that women seem to be having these per, this persistent self-doubt where men in the professional space seem totally confident regardless of their skills and abilities? But what happened and what I don't love and what I've really been coming to, coming to terms with in the last six months to a year is why have we turned it into a syndrome? Because what does that imply? It says that there's something wrong with you, right? You, you are diseased. You have a problem. And when we have a problem, then what does that mean? We're supposed to fix it, right? So what this has led people to, they calling a completely normal human emotion, doubt, calling it a syndrome, has led women specifically, but really what I'm talking about here is anyone who, again, doesn't fit that top of the patriarchy pyramid of white, able-bodied, rich man, educated man, anyone else leaving them feeling like there's something wrong with me. I, I have a problem that needs to be fixed. But here's the truth of it. What they actually found in all of those studies and su subsequent studies since then is it is not that women, femmes, thems, anyone who's not that white man, it is not that those people are underqualified. 
And that's the problem that they actually have a lack. They are perfectly qualified. The problem is actually the white men overestimating their qualifications or having exaggerated confidence. So it is not, we are not comparing apples to apples and saying women are falling short. What we're actually have found is that we are not comparing apples to apples because men are overestimating themselves. And so that leaves us feeling like we are less than when actually we are right on the nose, right where we should be, right? But this is what leads men to apply for, and white men to apply for a job when they only meet four or five of the criteria with total confidence and women to say, oh, I can't unless I, re unless I meet a hundred because we are expecting ourselves to be exactly right. Whereas men are overestimating saying, well, I only have four, but I'm so darn good, it won't matter. They're overcompensating, overestimating themselves. And so it is not a syndrome of women. It is not, imposter syndrome isn't the people who are feeling it. The actual syndrome, the real problem that needs to be fixed is the people who don't feel it. <laughs> those, those white, it's the entitled white male who doesn't feel it because he has that sense of entitlement that, that others have not received. And so I just think like, I'm really excited now to talk about this because I used to be part of the problem. I used to talk about this in the same way of like, here's your problem, here's how you fix it. And this is how most people talk about it. What we really need to talk about is this is not a problem. This is not a you problem. You don't have a syndrome. You don't have a, a cancer here that needs to be cured. There's nothing wrong with you. What you're experiencing is normal human doubt that anyone who doesn't have an exaggerated sense of entitlement would feel. That's a normal feeling. So it's not a problem. You don't have a problem. You're okay. And I wanna share that message with people that it is not a you problem. End episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's everything you need to know, folks. No, but really, that's a that's a fascinating reframe because you know I, we're always taught, okay, look inward and you know fix whatever. In reality, it sounds like what you're saying is that we need to just reframe how we look at the other people around us, the supposed people who deserve their seats at the table, yeah. um, and how we think about you know what they're doing and their accomplishments. I think it's an important it's an important step one. Yeah. Because of course, like end episode, if we stop here, people will be like, well, that's great. And I'm kind of <laughs> mad about all that stuff, but like, I still feel the same way inside. And right. I recognize that completely. So it's not enough to say like, Hey, it's not your fault. It's not your problem. Now get over it because right. that's not helpful either. But I think it's a really step one, instead of starting at step one saying, I need to do internal work because there's something wrong with me to say, Hey, this system is screwed up. Mm -hmm. The system that creates white men who are entitled and who over, who over exaggerate their abilities that creates that type of entitlement that allows them to feel that they should apply for things for which they are not remotely qualified, that that's a problem. And I want to see it, acknowledge that, say, this isn't me. I want to take it outside of me and say, hey, the system is a problem. And maybe even get a little angry about it because righteous anger is a beautiful place for change to start to happen. To say, I'm, I'm ticked. I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let the system continue to make me feel small when it is not my issue. I'm not the small one here. The system is the problem, not me. That's a great place to start. And I think it is really valuable to have that because I think too much of what's out there around imposter syndrome, again, heavy air quotes, is shamey, blamey, gross. Like it's your fault that you feel this way. When we call it a syndrome, it's your fault. You have this thing, there's something wrong with you, which then creates the internal shame of like, there is like, I'm broken. And when we're in a shameful place, we don't make big change. We don't go after those things. We don't acquire more power. We don't acquire more wealth. We don't do the things that are necessary to actually make massive change 
in the systems in which we live. It's all by design. The shame and blame are the best tools patriarchy has to maintain the system. Because you're not going to go out and say like, hell no, I'm not going to take this anymore. And I'm going to go start earning what I'm like, what I deserve. I'm going to start getting my piece of this pie. I'm going to start having power and using my voice, showing up, speaking truth to power. I'm not, I'm going to do those things. If we do that, we start to threaten the system. So everything becomes your fault. You're flawed. You're messed up. It's your fault. And from there, we just shrink. That is human psychology and in, in shame. We, we cocoon, we hide, we shrink, we don't act. So getting righteous with our anger is a great first step. And then once we can say, I'm removing this from myself, this isn't mine to own, then we can start to do, okay, how do I still though go about living in these systems and know that I can't suddenly overcome a lifetime of conditioning, of patriarchal conditioning in one day. So how do I begin to make those changes in a way that feels good? And then that's where I would call it the, you know, quote unquote, mindset work begins. But I do think it's really important to start from this place of saying, hey, you don't have to own this anymore. I think that this next, you know, step one, obviously we know the system is broken and, you know, we're made to feel to feel small and take up less physical space and, you know, theoretical space. But it's also going to be an uncomfortable process, right? Like, at least that's my perspective is, you know, we want to feel good and, you know, remove this doubt, but it's uncomfortable, right? The steps that you take, because it's kind of contrary to every single thing that we're taught to do. Yeah. And, and none of us wants to be uncomfortable, right? Which of course it's uncomfortable to be uncomfortable. So we avoid the discomfort and say, yeah, forget it. And so we have to be ready to say like, I'm going to have to get uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and start to get comfortable with discomfort, learning how to sit in our discomfort and to see it. And I think a big key of that is removing the judgment from it. Instead of seeing discomfort as bad, just acknowledging it as discomfort. It is just in the same way doubt is a feeling. It's not good or bad. In fact, doubt serves us. Every emotion that we experience, other than I would say perhaps shame, which is something that's done to us. It's not necessarily a natural thing that we choose or that happens, but it's something that's given to us. But our human emotions all serve a purpose. Doubt serves a purpose. Sometimes it means, hey, it's my intuition telling me this is not a room I should be in. Or maybe it's, you know, your doubt is saying, here's a red flag that maybe you aren't yet qualified for this thing. And that might actually be, you know, helping you avoid potential rejection, embarrassment, or, you know, and, and things that could be real. The problem is when it becomes exaggerated and we no longer have a sense of what's like true or not true about our feelings. And we're just judging them all as bad. We've been trained to think that, especially as women, we are only allowed to be happy. Men are allowed to be happy or angry, right? But most people are only given like those feelings. Those are only feelings that are acceptable in our world. Like if you're not happy, there's something wrong with you. Sadness serves a purpose. Anger serves a purpose. Doubt serves a purpose. These are all here for a reason. So learning how to stop judging them as good or bad and just learning to exist with our feelings helps to start to change that discomfort around making change. And I think another important thing too is to stop, like if we can, for that reframe, what if we stop saying that imposter syndrome is the thing I need to fix, but what I need to fix is my discomfort with it. Because it's normal, doubt is normal. So if we're saying like, instead of saying that the problem I have is doubt, the problem I have is not accepting doubt. And so how do I begin to put my energy, all that energy I've been trying to say, put into fixing, overcoming, you know, crushing my imposter syndrome. Could I put that same energy into 
like learning to accept it, learning to be with it, learning to just say, this is a normal thing and it's okay. And what does it feel like to sit in the doubt and just say, oh, hey, doubt, you're here. What are you trying to tell me? Okay, I hear you. And maybe that's valid, but also doing the curiosity, not the judgment, the questioning of it. Like, is that true? Can I know that to be true? What evidence do I have of that? And the work that goes into then saying, how, what, what choices do I want to make here when you show up? Instead of just like, I feel it, it's so uncomfortable, I'm going to run the other way and not even try. So let's dig into that a little bit more, the, you know, the mindset work that happens with being comfortable with that uncomfortable doubt feeling. Like, how do we start with that process? Well, and I, so I'm talking about curiosity here versus judgment. And mm-hmm. I think that is like far and away, <laughs> like if you only take one thing from this <laughs> is the, the key to self-compassion is curiosity. The key to compassion is curiosity. When you go to a party and you meet someone, if you walk up to them and say, wow, you look like getting any sleep um, or boy, you don't look like you want to be here, right? If we go up and immediately just start judging someone just based on like what their face is telling us. So we, we think we perceive something about, it, we just start judging them. Those are not people who are going to want to be our friend, right? That is not how we make friends. That is not showing compassion. How do we show compassion to another human? How do we, um, and by the way, also not even just judging, what if we try to solve their problems? Walk up and say, here's what I think you should be doing with your life, what, right? None of that stuff works. The stuff we try to normally do to ourselves. What does work is we walk up and say, tell me about you. How are you feeling? Oh, what's going on in your life? What are you excited about? What do you love to do? We ask questions, we get curious, and that is the compassionate approach that we know to use with others, yet we can't seem to do it for ourselves. And if we can learn to start saying, I have something happening here, I'm having a thought, I'm having a feeling, I'm thinking about taking some action, and I'm judging myself for it, I'm judging it as good or bad. What if I stop and say, okay, hold on, I sense judgment, don't judge the judgment, don't judge yourself for judging, but just, oh, I'm judging, okay, hold on, let me stop, let me get curious. What's this really about? We, that's the key to introspection, but most of us don't do it because those questions, again, can take us to that discomfort of saying, I have to confront, I have to be with some deeper why here that is uncomfortable, that I don't like. I don't like about myself or I don't like that happened. But that is really the key to beginning to make these changes is learning how to first just become aware I lived my life on autopilot for a long time, so I know it. Most of us do. We don't think about what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling. We're just, it's happening. It's happening on autopilot. We don't look at it. We don't question it. That's why I tell people like awareness is 90% of this work. Just learning to actually become truly aware of what you're thinking, feeling, and acting, how you're acting, thinking of those things, noticing it. Instead of just letting it happen, stopping and actually paying attention to what is this thought and not accepting it at face value. And from there, then getting curious, starting there. Like if you hear nothing else, like if you can just begin to do that and it sounds so simple and it is, but it's not easy. And it is not what most of us do. If you can start there, then you begin to change everything because you can't change what you can't see. And once you see something, you can't unsee it. So once you begin to see the truth of the situation about like, I'm sure like they've invited me to be on this podcast. I want to say no, because I'm totally terrified to speak and use my voice, right? Like everyone's going to say, think, I don't know what I'm talking about. So if you can stop there and say, oh, I notice myself saying like, I'm judging this already as being a bad idea. I'm judging that I won't be able to do it. If you can learn to actually recognize that and just, instead of just accepting it as like, well, nope, I'm not qualified. I'll say no. 
to notice, to become aware, and then begin to ask yourself those questions. Can I know this to be true? Byron Katie is a great teacher who says like, can I know this to be true? Can I absolutely know this to be true? That second truth is almost always no, because we, can, we can't absolutely know almost anything to be true, right? So I can't absolutely know it to be true. And then asking yourself like, where has this come from? Where have I felt this before? I love a question that says like, who benefits from me feeling this way or thinking this way? Because when we start to explore that, sometimes that takes us right back to that patriarchy as the answer. And sometimes when we know, notice like, I'm not the one benefiting from me feeling this way, but that other guy who's going to keep profiting because he's selling his course and I'm too scared to sell mine, he's benefiting from me feeling this way. Again, that can start to lead to some of that righteous anger where we can begin to make some change. I feel like a lot of this work is what happens in therapy or what happens in journaling, right? Are those exercises that you feel like are use, uh, useful? Uh, well, I love therapy and like hundred percent of my clients are either in or have been in therapy. Mm -hmm. And I'm always very clear. I have lots of content if you are interested on my site about the difference between coaching and therapy, because there is a difference and there needs to be. And even trauma-informed coaches, quote unquote, that are out there shouldn't be treating trauma. Trauma, especially big T trauma, you know, the really big events that are in the past that are causing you to still have a lot of pain around them. That is the kind of stuff that should be done in a therapeutic setting. Exploring the past is what therapy is about. It is about going and touching those wounds in a way that is really safe and with someone who knows what they're doing. Because when people who do not know what they're doing help people start touching those wounds, they can actually cause much more pain and much more trauma. And so it's gotta be very clear that that's it. For me, what coaching really is about is therapy is a lot about the past. It doesn't have to be, but it typically is a lot about let's examine the past and how it's affecting you today. Whereas coaching is, we sometimes look at the past only insofar as what are the patterns that are continuing today? But our goal is how do we get you where you wanna go? How do we start to change those patterns so that you can begin to move forward, right? Not just sort of looking at what happened and how is it affecting you now. That's where therapy is a great complement to coaching because then coaching says, okay, good. You're starting to be able to touch those wounds without them like being so painful. Now let's say, how are those things keeping you from what you, where you want to go? And how can we begin to get that forward momentum? And so I think therapy is great. I think it should be done in, in um, it can be done in tandem with coaching, but coaching should not be a substitute for it. And anyone, any coaches that are like, saying they're trauma-informed, be very careful or at least ask them what that means for them. Journaling, I think, is super powerful because it's that introspective work that's really hard to do. It's hard for us to hold a mirror up to ourselves and really begin to say, like that question of, can I know this to be true? Your brain will say, yes, of course. Of course I know it to be true. It feels true. It feels really true, so it must be true. That's where coaching can be helpful because you have someone else outside of you who's holding up that mirror and you can get that third party, that outsider's perspective that begins to help you see things that we can't always see for ourselves. Journaling can act in a way as that coach for you too, that can help you by giving you those questions that starts to get you asking things in a new way and seeing things in a new way. So after we've become aware and we've started to get curious and ask those questions, how do we take you know, that into actually taking action? Yeah. I'm a, so back to self-compassion, which obviously curiosity is where it starts. I talk about see, hear, love, this part of you. So the part of you that's feeling the doubt, that's feeling afraid to take this action, 
it is not what we normally do is we either ignore it and do it anyway, which sometimes works, but doesn't feel good. And we always end up in the same spot. We will tell it like, you're stupid. Stop being like this. And basically we're just saying to ourselves, we hate ourselves, which then only confirms all of those things that we're feeling anyway and keeps us stuck. Or we will try to logic and reason with it. Well, here's the five reasons why you're wrong, which part of that truth seeking piece feeds into that. So we have to be careful there because just lodging and reasoning with it doesn't always work because it's usually some sort of inner child part of us, or at least some very emotional part of us that isn't going to respond that well to logic and reason. It is not like a logical part of us. If it was, it probably wouldn't be acting this way to begin with because usually all evidence points to the contrary. So it's not about logic and reason. So then what does work? Well, I talk about see, hear, love, which means see this part of you for what it is. Don't judge it. Don't be angry with it. Get curious with it. Like, what's this really about? What's going on here? And noticing this is not about some, whatever my brain's telling me. It is not that I don't have enough experience. It is not that, you know, everyone's going to judge me and my life will fall apart, right? All of that stuff that feels exaggerated, it's black and white. That's not what really is happening here. So what is it? Maybe it's a fear of, you know, embarrassment, a fear of rejection, whatever that is. So what's this really about? See that, begin to see it for what it really is without judgment and then hear it out. Listen to that part of you. What is it afraid of? What does it need from you? What does it need you to know? Because it's speaking up, it's showing up to say like, don't do this thing because we might be embarrassed. So then asking it and listening to it, what, what would be wrong with that? What would happen if that happened? What are you afraid of if we are embarrassed? What might that mean? And when we start to hear it out, and this is where, you know, there is that bit of the past sometimes that comes up. We will hear some part of us saying like, oh my God, but remember that time when we stood up in seventh grade and everyone laughed at us. And for the next four years, we were the one that everyone made fun of. And we can't go back there. It's too painful. So we can hear out what it wants you to know. It's important to hear that out instead of just pushing it down again. It is, there is stuff there that's unresolved that needs some love. And that's why that last piece is the love it. And that is to validate it, to say, ah, I hear you. I know what you're afraid of. Like, yes, I get it. This is scary. It is scary. We could be like embarrassed and that would be really awful. And we're not the person we were in seventh grade. We, we, we can handle this now. If we're embarrassed, we're going to be okay. Validating those feelings is important. And what it needed to hear that it didn't get in the past is important. And part of that loving then is how am I going to keep you safe? And I think this is so important and we don't talk about it much. Creating internal safety. So yes, I hear you. I'm afraid of being rejected. I'm afraid of being embarrassed if we take this stage. I get that and it is scary and we're gonna be okay. And here is how. So then how can you keep that part of yourself safe? That part of you that is terrified because most of us have eroded all self-trust over our lifetimes by acting against our own self-interest, acting against that intuition that's trying to tell us something, telling it to shut up and doing something anyway. You know playing big, all of those things, swinging for the fences when really we were terrified. Every time we've acted against our own emotional safety, we've eroded self-trust. So rebuilding that trust begins by saying, here's how I'm gonna keep you safe. Maybe that means I'm gonna make sure that I have five friends in the room that I can look at. That'll help me create that safety, it'll anchor me. Maybe it means I'm gonna practice my speech 50 times so that I feel like I can do this and feel safe about it. Whatever it looks like for you, for every person, it's different. But figuring that piece out of how can I take action here in a way that feels safe. It doesn't mean staying in my comfort zone. It doesn't mean I won't take the action. It means here's how I'm going to start to take action, even if the action is smaller 
So maybe your big goal is to, you know, write a book. And right now the action that you're going to take is I'm not ready to start writing the book. I can't do that and feel emotionally safe. But what I could do is I could start researching how many words I need to have in a book, or I could start creating an outline for a book, right? Whatever it looks like for you. So playing those smaller steps and breaking it down into safe steps. The inaction often comes because we feel like the only options are A and B. It's either this or that, which is I do nothing or I do the very big scary thing. And if I, and it, so if I don't do the big scary thing, then I do nothing and I'm a failure. That is not truth. There is in, in life and always, the truth is never this and that. There's always, it's not black, white, it's gray. There is nuance if we look for it, if we want to find it. And this is an example of that with this imposter syndrome that we find the gray. What's the nuance? What's the middle ground? What's the next step? And when I work with my clients and we talk about like, they will tell me I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. I'm terrified. I can't do this thing. When we can go through some of this and get to that piece of, so what's, what's the next thing you could do that would feel safe? Every person always who has said, I don't know what to do. I can't take action. I'm terrified has an answer. When they can get, we have to get through all this other stuff to quiet all that, the voices. And, but when we can get to that place, there's always an answer because your intuition knows. So it's, it's a whole process. But if you do these things with consistency, you will get where you want to go in a way that feels good. And that is really like my hope with coaching is to not be, there are plenty of, there's enough coaches out there for those people who say, I just want to do it. I don't care if it's hard and it's awful. I just want to get it done and make my millions or whatever. There's plenty of coaches for you. My hope is where I fill the void in this space is for the people who say, I'm tired of it feeling awful. I'm tired of one step forward, one step back. I'm tired of like going after my dreams, but feeling like crap about myself the whole time. Then there's another way. It may take longer. Not going to lie. It'll probably take longer, but you're going to feel good in the process. And to me, that's worth a lot. Now for people listening, which will be most people listening who are hoping to launch a product or in the process of launching a product and they are, you know, dealing with these feelings of doubt. Is there um, like a recommendation that you have in terms of do this every day or, you know, do this exercise before you start launching that you recommend people kind of take on? I think if you can remember, see, hear, love and do that Mm -hmm all the time. Like, you know, when I start working with people too, I'm always telling them because that awareness piece is so important. That seeing it part is so important. I can't overemphasize how important it is because we just don't. That like you do it, you, you do it to the point of it seeming silly, like throughout your day, just constantly checking in. Like, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I doing here? Right. Constantly checking in. And then as you start to notice anything that feels hesitant, uncomfortable, you know, where you're starting to notice black and white thinking, any of those places then to stop and say, let me do the see here love real quick. Let me just see it for what it is. Okay. What's this really about? Hear it out. What does it want me to know? What does it need me to feel? And then love it, validate it and tell it how I'm going to take action in a way that feels safe. If you can remember those things and do it a lot, the more you practice it, the better and easier it becomes. And the more effective it is doing every once in a while or waiting until the moment of absolute panic it can help, but it may not be as effective as if you're doing it all the time. And just, I mean, it's, this is really represented change in the way we treat ourselves and think about ourselves. And it takes time. And so not beating yourself up as you mess up because you will, we all, I still do. Mm-hmm. So like just allowing yourself to at all times, start to notice 
when you like, even if you've started to go pretty far down the rabbit hole of self-judgment, as soon as you notice it to say, okay, oh, let me stop. I'm not going to judge the judgment. It, what's done is done. Let's just, where are we now? And let me start getting curious. And now let me go into that. Let me see it. Let me hear it. Let me love it. Yeah. Practice it. Cause I really, I'm telling you, it can be so helpful. It's not like a quick fix. I'm not a coach who gives you like, here's your one, like it's three steps, but it's not like here's not your easy. three-step solution right. to, right? Yeah, it's not, there's not a little checklist and you're done and forever you will not have imposter syndrome. You will forever have self-doubt because it's a normal human emotion. Mm-hmm. And that's so important to know, like it, this, is not a, this is not a syndrome we have to cure. This will never go away. And there's freedom in that. It's not just like, oh, like going back to patriarchy and oh, it's kind of all heavy and awful. This isn't, it's not bad to learn that this will never go away. To me, that's freeing to say like, oh, I don't have to fight this. And there's not something wrong with me that I can't get rid of it. It's because it's a normal freaking human emotion. I will forever have doubt. How do I think I'm going to be the rare human exception that just suddenly never feels, experiences doubt again? Like to think I'm going to be the rare, weird human that never experiences sadness again? Of course not. So learning that, I, to me, there's freedom in that to say like, okay, this will never go away. Cool. So then instead of how am I fighting it, how am I going to learn to accept it? How do I learn to live with it? I think that's freeing. It definitely is freeing. And I do think the see, here love is something that you almost are going to have to retrain your mind to stop and do it because it's just opposite of what we are taught to do, which is like hustle through and, you know, yeah, stuff all the emotions down into a box and never open it. <laughs> that, I mean, so I work primarily with um, high achieving, really smart women for the most part. I also work with men's and men's, but I, mostly I'm working with high achieving, really smart women. And what do those women all have in common? To be, What we have been trained, what we have told, been told is that to be that smart and high achieving woman, we can't have emotions. We need to stuff them all. We can't feel anything, right? We're turning ourselves into robots. We have been trained. It's not our fault. So we are not internalizing this. We're not taking ownership of this, but this has been done to us that we have been told that if we want to be successful, if we want to make our way to the top, then we got to put away those emotions. We got to quote unquote, be like the guys, right? Who also, by the way, have normal human emotions. They've just learned also that they have to suppress them. That is not healthy. This is not what we want to do. And in fact, I'm telling you, even whether it's the wealth and riches, whether you're going to be able to be, you know, on a stage with Tony Robbins, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is you are going to stop hating yourself. And even if you don't hate yourself, you're going to stop feeling crappy all the time. It is not going to be this constant like battle within. How many of us are experiencing this constant like battle inside ourselves? And we can stop that. And I think that's worth a lot. Absolutely. It is. Becky, this has been super fascinating to listen to. And I know you have a workshop where you um, dive a little bit deeper into this. Where can we find that workshop? Yeah, you can go to beckymollencamp.com forward slash, I guess it's forward slash. I never <laughs> forward slash. slash. I just, I just say slash <laughs> beckymollencamp.com slash imposter. And I have a free 30 minute workshop where I talk through this stuff in more depth and give you a lot more about kind of the patriarchy piece if you're interested in that. And a few other tools that I also use with people when it comes to, once you get to the other side of understanding this is not a you problem, then how do you begin to coexist with that and learn to accept that this is normal and it's going to be okay. You're also on social media. Where can we find you? Instagram's probably where I'm most active active, or YouTube. And they're both just Becky Mollenkamp. Awesome. We'll have all those links in our show notes. Becky, thank you so, so much for hanging out with us today. We appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. And also, I guess I'll mention that I have a podcast too, the Gutsy Boss podcast. My business is Gutsy Boss, not just for business owners, also just anyone who wants to be the boss of their life and feel that courageous feeling. Um, so you can um, learn a lot more there because I talk about all these things on the podcast as well. Amazing. All right, everybody go check out everywhere Becky is online. You're going to love her. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, Rebel Boss. Do you want to learn how to launch your digital product in the next 90 days? If yes, grab the free roadmap over at edenfree.com forward slash RBL. That's edenfree.com forward slash RBL. Thank you so much for listening. If you love the podcast, don't forget to leave us a five-star review and a share on social media. Your support really does mean the world. I'm your host, Eden Freed. And remember, keep kicking ass keep putting in the work, and most importantly, keep showing up. We'll see you next time.